You are listening to the In Context Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the In Context Podcast. Today I have a special guest. I'm really excited uh, to have this guy with us this morning. This is uh, John Onwuchekwa. Uh, John o, I met him a couple of years ago in Nidri in right, Edinburgh. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, time's gone by. Brother, you still look young. You still look fit. You still look oh, great. Thanks, brother, I put on about four stones since I last saw you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. Yo, yo, I, I, I think I look fit because you can't see my midsection here, man. Being <laughs> in the pandemic, it's expanded. <laughs> awesome. But since yeah. I've seen you, you you've, you, you, you've got a, a little girl now, haven't you, brother? Yeah, man. She's, she's four years old now. So, awesome. Uh, a year yeah. to the month after we were together in Scotland. Um, yeah we brought her home and so she's she's yeah she'll be four next month oh man it's great that's lovely and uh your your wife chandra is that right yep yeah yeah chandra's great too so she's doing fantastic man yeah so so most people who who listening will know you as the author of the 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 book on prayer yeah Uh, but but just share a little bit about you who you are and, and what you do because you do far more than write books. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm a pastor uh, as well. I've been a pastor for going on 14 years right now. So, um, yeah, you know, and I don't have all my hair, but I'm not a, a old dude by any stretch of the means. I'll be 37 this year. Um, and so I'm a pastor like you shared. I'm a husband and a father. Um, I'm also recently an entrepreneur, right? So I got with a group of friends and we started um, a coffee company here in the West End uh, where we live. And the goal has been, you know, in the same way that we thought our community needed um, a spiritual component to help rebuild it. We also felt that a spiritual component is not the only need that folks have. There's certain economic maladies that plague the community that we're in. And so we want to try to remedy those things by providing opportunities um, that aren't as prevalent in the community in which I live as they are in a bunch of other places. Mm -hmm. So we spent our time, um, yeah, starting to work on that. And by God's grace, I mean, it's been fantastic. And so, yeah, so pastor, uh, uh, author, husband, business owner, um, <laughs> pandemic survivor, uh, <laughs> thus far, right. Awesome. So, yeah. so you're in, in Atlanta, is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And you weren't born and raised in Atlanta. Did you travel no. there specifically to plant the church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. I did a uh, college and grad work north of there. And uh, 12 years ago now, me and a group of people moved from Denton, Texas, Dallas, uh, to Atlanta um, to start Blueprint Church. So that's not the church that I'm at now. So we moved here to start a church 12 years ago, and I served on staff with that church for six years. And now six years, and then six years ago, planted Cornerstone Church. That's the church that I pastor at now. So, awesome. Yeah. So, so, so what? You, you planted a church. You were in, in this blueprint church. Mm-hmm. 
what were the reasons that made you think that there needed to be a church in where you are now in the West End? Yeah, yeah. So we uh, planted Blueprint Church in um, 2009, 2010. And one of the things that we saw was um, from the moment that we planted the church, we saw that there was a need in Atlanta, so much so that the church that we hoped would be uh, neighborhood specific really became more of a regional church. And there was a draw and there was a pull from all sides of town. And it was great. We had a great opportunity and resources to help uh, as other churches were being planted. Um, and then uh, maybe a few years into that church plant, Richard Mullen, a, a longtime friend of mine, um, who uh, was a part of the church, felt a burden to go to an area in Atlanta that was probably like the like Nidri of Atlanta, right? So um, Atlanta is a major city that was starting to change. And the Southwest side of that town was a city that didn't have as much development. It, it had a higher concentration of poverty, crime, vacant homes, uh, prostitution, drugs, all of that. And as Richard was in transition, him and a few families said, hey, rather than going to a side of town that's nice, that we could just have this nice life in, let's move to a community that's in need of being rebuilt. And let's come alongside some of the works that are already done to see that rebuilt. And so it was really like, yeah, folks have looked at me because I've been the lead teaching pastor as the leader of all of this. But it like this work wouldn't have started without Richard and those three families. So they were the ones that moved in here. Um, they laid some of that groundwork and um, really got us to a point where then I came in and just helped out in the work that was already starting. And so, yeah, so we sought to plant a church in a context that we felt like needed it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, excited. I remember when I was training, uh, Mez was helping to, to to show us how to develop a vision and, and, and mission plan. And yeah. we, we looked at your cornerstone uh, oh, yeah. vision plan. That was the template that we used. Oh, yeah. I remember looking at it thinking, oh boy, this is a man was just like little pictures on. <laughs> it was like a four-year-old had done it with a crayon and a piece of paper. Right. I was like, wow, I'm going to have to learn some new skills here. Yeah. But, yeah, that that really helped me and encouraged me to to think bigger. I think than yeah. than than what I'd originally planned. Oh, I, mean. I mean, I was just originally thinking I need money for the next three months. And, yeah, and I was just thinking very very short term. Yeah, and I think that plan helped me to see a, a bigger picture and that the picture was more than just a, a, a spiritual thing. Yeah, I, I'm really encouraged. I've listened to a lot of the things, blogs you've wrote, articles that you've done, and uh, more recently a podcast with, with Eric right. Brown. Yeah. And, and what I like is you, you seem to be able to attract entrepreneurs to come and join your church. <laughs> right. So yeah. first of all, how do you attract entrepreneurs? Right. Yeah. And, and, and secondly, what, how have you encouraged them or was it you that encouraged them to, to use their entrepreneurial skills within that community to not only uh, help uh, 
encourage spiritual growth in, in, yeah. the, in the city, but also to encourage social and economic growth within yeah. the city too. Well, one, it's it's funny because uh, as I think of how did we attract them, I've known Erica Brown for maybe 15 years. She's one of my wife's best friends. And um, we didn't know that she had that inside of her. That was the thing that came out. So, yeah, I mean, and you heard the podcast story. She got pregnant before she got married, a teenager in college, didn't get done with school, didn't have a career path. And I just saw her slowly, you know, go from one job to the next. And she was super diligent and resourceful. And man, our main thing is like, uh, so, you know, I think part of what, and I don't want to say helps us to attract entrepreneurs as much as it is creating a space where entrepreneurs can be birthed and flourish, right? So I don't think we have a higher capacity than you would find in any other space. But I do think the way that we have things set up is um, from day one of our church, we had said, hey, we don't have this big grand vision and strategy of how we as a church are going to change this place, right? We know that we want to change this place, but more importantly than the fact that we want to change this place, we know that we want to change this place. And, And so what that means is it's going to require all of us. So in the early stages of the church, one of the things that we said is, hey, um, we feel like there are things that scripture mandates for us to do as a church that we should gather, right? We should worship, we should care for one another and love one another. Uh, But we also think that scripture mandates few things that we're to do consistently and well. And with that, scripture leaves lots of margin for us to creatively determine how we're going to move the rest of our lives. So we said, hey, let's be diligent about the things that scripture mandates and make sure that we do those few things well. And then let's free folks up and let's just look at who uses the margins of their life well and innovatively and with like industriously, like let's see who's diligent to use the margins to rebuild communities and who uh, uh, attract people to their works. And now since we've been um, scant in the way we've used the resources on these things, we're freed up to use a lot more resources to fund and to help excel and propel works that are already starting to go. I, I think so many times pastors feel as if they have to come up with the vision, strategy and all that. And then they take folks and plug folks into places. The problem is people with an entrepreneurial bent don't like that, right? It's no, 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 don't plug me in. I'd rather, I'd like to do this. And can you help me do that? And I find people in the church have much more energy to do the unique things that God has placed on their heart than they do just being a cog in the wheel of some system that doesn't really align with their visions, their burdens, their passions. So we just like to create a place where we can be 
strategically reactive. Let's look for where God's at work and let's fan that flame. And yeah, yeah, keep it moving. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah and I love it because a lot of people who are entrepreneurial within the church in the UK will often stay in an affluent area, in right. an affluent church. Yeah. And they think, well, God has blessed me in business or, or, or with a certain gift so yeah. that I can earn money and then give money to, to oh, fund yeah. various works. But how awesome would that be if if people start to think like what they've done in your church, God has blessed me with a gift to make money in this community where money isn't being made and and <laughs> invest practically my, my gifts. Are, Cause some people feel that because they can't preach or teach the Bible, their yeah. gift is only given money, but their time and knowledge is, is valuable, isn't it brother? Yeah. And that's one of the most unfortunate realities, right? That the church has been reduced to what takes place within the four walls that what we're saying is no 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 like all right one of the reasons why we called our church cornerstone is because we feel like we were planting in a community that already knew it needed to be rebuilt right so everybody was on a rebuilding project and so when you're building cornerstone right a Cornerstone is the first stone that's laid, right? So we thought it was important for the community that we were in to have a spiritual anchor or center. And that's what we we hoped that the church would be. And while that should be the first stone that's laid because it helps to align all the rest of the stones that are laid, I think sometimes in the Christian community, we stop short and think, uh, that's the only stone that that needs to be laid that Christians only need to move in and start a good church and we felt like no 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 it's the first stone that's laid uh but there are more stones that need to be laid in order for a rebuilding project to really uh find its way to completion and give people the shelter that they need so our thing was all right let's start this church first and I think that if we start this church first, uh, major on the things that scripture mandates for us, then as a result of the relationships that folks make here, I think they'll be motivated to start to lay these other stones um, down, right? And a community needs more than just preachers, right? There are practical things that they need. They need, you know, teachers, they need tutors, they need realtors, they need uh, businessmen that can come in and use their acumen to create an industry in a community so that these people that have been saved, that have been transformed, can work at a job or have a career that enables them, right? Like uh, Paul's going to say in Ephesians 4, let him who stole no longer steal, but let him look work, but not just so that he can take care of his needs, but let him work so that he can provide for the needs of somebody else who's in need that may steal. And I think in order for that to take place, it definitely starts with the preaching of the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. And so, um, yeah, more than like being the visionary of the one that started it, right? I just count myself blessed to be able to have a church 
of so many folks that have grasped that or understood the bigness of the mission, even when my preaching in terms of what God would have us to do uh, was too small or too narrow to encapsulate all of what should take place. Mm. Yeah, encouraging them. Yeah. As you're speaking, so many things are <laughs> popping in my head thinking that, can I ask him about this? I want to try and keep on script. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a very loose script, but what I do want to talk about is, so for churches like ours to exist in our communities, we could have a hundred people attend our church and it still probably wouldn't be enough the income that we would get from the people who come probably still wouldn't be enough to employ the staff who work at the church. Yeah. But because he has no jobs, many of the people who come from the backgrounds who used to steal and the Bible said, <laughs> stop stealing and start working. Well, where they're supposed to start when they use no right. payments. We're right. talking about in Proverbs to listen to the counsel of your, your father and your mother. But if there's no fathers or mothers, then who right. are the kids to listen to? Right. So it starts with the preaching of the word, but, we need to be preaching to somebody. And, right. and the things we're asking people to do, they need to have the opportunities uh, that many people take for granted in order yeah. for them to live a, a godly life. Right. So in Middlesbrough, we had some heavy industry and uh, there was a lot of work. We've got the largest hospital in Europe. Yeah. So a lot of Christians are employed in Middlesbrough, teachers, policemen, uh, prison officers. They will yeah. travel in from Durham or York Right. earn the money in Middlesbrough off the back of the poverty in Middlesbrough and then move back to Durham and York and spend it in Durham and York, which is already affluent and bless their churches. Right. Yeah. So, so, so we, we uh, our aim is we need funding externally right. to exist as a church. But my hope is, look, this is short-term, give us your money short-term to help us, to help us longer-term send us your people People can come and work in the area, spend the money in the area, start businesses in the area. And, and what you're doing is just so exciting for me because that is the next level to send your people. This is what the yeah. people can do once they get here. Right, yeah. No, no, um, um, and uh, again, I mean, that's been something that's been a blessing more so than the product of any, you know, strategy we've employed, right? It's been a blessing to have people who understood the need of being able to invest in uh, the community holistically, right? To raise their kids here, to send their kids to school here and all of that. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, we just count ourselves blessed to have people that are like that. And I think the amazing thing is, is that it doesn't take many, right? That all it takes is a few to do that well. And when they model that and people get a vision for what it could be, then, yeah, then they, it like, you know, we spend so much time on behavior and we don't understand that somebody's behavior is never going to rise above their vision, right? They've got to see and have a picture of what could be, but once they see and have a picture of what could be, it's it's hard for them to unsee that. And so our prayer is just that God would give people a vision that they can't shake. Hmm. Yeah. And that and that that vision, uh, it's like when Paul talks about how can people 
get saved if they don't hear the gospel. Right, right, they, right. They hear the gospel, but how can people change if they don't see how the gospel changes? Uh, they, they need absolutely. to have that vision. They, they need to see that there is an opportunity, and that ties us in with with what Erica said about about uh, mm. about role models. Yeah. So, so last week we we were sharing uh, about uh, being a father to the fatherless, mm. and the, there was an example of uh, a friend of mine. He is a white retired policeman, mm -hmm. and he uh, mentored a young black man who yeah. uh, lived on a council estate, was involved with drugs, and, and, and become a Christian shortly after he started boxing. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the great benefit of being a father figure. But yeah. Ben, but Ben, who 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 was uh, the guy who was black, he was saying that he still didn't have any black role models. And yeah. he was the only black man in his family. His dad was Nigerian, his mom was white. He lived with his mom. So he right. never had any people like him that he could uh, aspire. Yeah. I, I grew up fatherless and working class and I'm in a middle-class church. Yeah. And I'm seeing people, there's nobody like me in these churches. Right. And I think Ben was talking about, and, and I was talking about, because there wasn't many people like us, sometimes we feel like we don't belong. And right. even when I'm preaching sometimes, I'm like, what are you doing up here? You do not right. belong. <laughs> that imposter syndrome. Right, yeah. And I know a lot of people get that. But when there's yeah. people who aren't like you, I think yeah. it comes in even harder. And Absolutely. let me just find that quote, what Erica said. Because I, yeah. I found this was, uh, I, I could just, it just resonated with me. The, she, she asked uh, a, a group of men from your community, I think, like, who were your mentors? And it, it's a predominantly black community that you're from. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and all of their role models were, were white. Right. Uh, and and one, of, one of these men had said, I had to be who I couldn't see. Right. Which, uh, resonates because I'm thinking, I want to change, but I had no yeah. examples Right. To, to look to. Yeah. 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 Um, um, yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, it's not to discount mm. the faithful way that those men had served, right? It's yeah. not even to say you can't be a mentor for somebody that doesn't share the same race as you. Like, that's not mm. what it, it, it like means at all. I think what she was trying to get at was, yeah, just the, um, there is a power when you see or you hear uh, the message of the gospel coming through a package or a person that speaks your heart language, mm -hmm. right? So it's like that was the miracle of Acts 2, right? You see in Acts 2 where people are flawed. You've got this diverse group of folks that are flawed and they say, oh, wait a minute man, this is great. And they say, we get to hear the mighty works of God. And then they're going to say this in our own tongue, mm -hmm. right? That there's something about like, we all know what it's like to, or most of us may know what it's like to spend time in a foreign country mm -hmm. where nobody speaks mm -hmm. your language. Mm -hmm. And if you have a cursory understanding of the language, I mean, you can make sense and communicate and say, hey, like I need more water, where's the bathroom? You can talk about the basic things, but it's like, as you're standing there, 
surrounded by people that are foreign, there's nothing like hearing somebody come up behind you that speaks your language and you turn and your heart is full and there's a camaraderie, there's a thing that you um, latch onto, you just feel like, man, I can be completely myself, I can hear from them, we can speak to one another at our heart's language, right? It's it's the, the thing that the church works through, right? Through um, Acts 15, where they're trying to say, hey, y'all, listen, all right, look, 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 the gospel has gone forth, uh, but it's primarily gone forth through Jewish packaging, so much so that people that are young in the faith are being led to believe that they have to adopt this package to get the gospel. So let's make sure the gospel goes out in such a way where people can see and feel that reminded of the, or regardless of the package that I come in, right, the truth of the gospel can come through me. So that's what we're just trying to build out, right? There is power in people being able to see somebody that looks like them and say, oh, this is what it looks like for, right, the gospel or the goodness of God to invade the world in which I live. And that's why I, I think, man, yeah, Christianity, like this is the, one of the selling points of Christianity, right? That it's not situated in a particular culture the way other uh, religions may be, right? That Christianity's global footprint is meant to help us see that it's a, oh no, God is not just the God primarily of a particular genre of people. God is the God of all his global peoples. And so there's a beauty in that, like, that, yeah, that uh, panorama, right? There's a beauty in just, just that diverse group that can be models to their kinsmen uh, according to the flesh. And that's been it. exciting to be able to do that here for people who, when they think or they hear of Christianity, um, they don't think it's something that can, that can or should come in a package that, yeah, looks like me. And again, the, the, the problem that I've found in, in, in trying to share a similar thing is in the north of England where we are, uh, right. there's very few pastors, but the ones that are a middle class and from down south. Right. So, so when we go to church, we are sat, the working class northerners are sat looking at a, a, an educated academic white middle class preacher right a, a, and i'm pointing out the problem similar yeah. to what erica did saying look every pastor in the north of england is white academic and, and middle class we need diversity we need more right. working class and poor pastors and preachers yeah and what i'm saying is the problem is we don't see diversity in the pul pulpit right the problem is the poor aren't being reached with the gospel, aren't being equipped with the gospel. But right. what people are hearing are, I hate the middle class and, <laughs> and the know. academics, and I want them out of the north of England. Right. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> and, right. and I do have a similar pushback when, because highlighting that black men only have white role models isn't an attack against white men. It's, it's we need some black men to, that these young boys can aspire to be like, which is a Absolutely. different thing. 
Yeah, yeah, because people, the people that push back the hardest against that statement Mm -hmm. discount just how important or how vital a vision of success is Mm -hmm. to people believing that they have a legitimate future, right? Mm -hmm. They discount the fact that every time a little boy or a girl flips through a magazine of heroes or movie stars, they're always going to see somebody that looks like them. They discount whenever that kid turns on a, a t- the little white kid, when they turn on the TV and see people celebrated or in power or in any field from lawyers to astronauts to news reporters to teachers to weathermen, they're going to see somebody that looks like them. They discount just how prevalent it is for everybody to have a vision of success and achievement and all of that stuff uh, with people that look like them, they, they discount just how troubling or how hard it is to instill into somebody else um, that, yeah, re- regardless of your background, regardless of where you came from, there is a God that yeah, loves you, that cares for you, that has a plan for your life, right? That has died on the cross for you to remove your sin and guilt and shame, has raised from the dead to give you new life, to put you on a pathway for you to live in this world altruistically, like to live in this world, looking outward about how you can be an example of Christ in this world. And they discount how hard it is for people to grasp that if they hear that about themselves, but the only thing that they see are people that don't look like them starting to do that. And so, yeah, it's not saying at all, we hate white folks and we want them out. (laughs) No, we want them there. We just want people that look like us there too, in equal positions of power and authority and prominence and being front and center. And that, that's, that's Ephesians 3, isn't it? The manifold wisdom of God is, yeah. is, is how God unites Jew right. and uh, rich and poor, man and woman, old and young, right. were brought together. Uh, Absolutely. It, it baffles the, the, the spirit world, whether it be the angels or the demons, right. that just like marvel at God, at how he does this. Yet, like you say, it's, it's equity, it's equality. It's not, right. it's not the, the pews are right. diverse. It's yeah. the pulpit. It's the right. strategists. It's, it's, Absolutely. it's everything, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the pushback that I'm getting. And another quote, sorry for, for looking back at my notes, but I see no, a, no, pinned, it's good. A, a, pinned, a pinned tweet of yours. This is the most organized I've been, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Normally I just riff, but I, I don't want to miss some, yeah. some of these things. But uh, you've got a pinned tweet, and I think the BT uh, retweeted it yesterday. Oh, where's it gone? You're talking about, uh, it says, I'd rather spend my time working towards a solution than convincing people there's a problem. Uh, 2020 has taught me there will be no shortage of people who disagree with your diagnosis and solutions. So instead of trying to convince them to see things your way, just get to work. Yeah. Uh, amen. Let's just crack on because 
I got so consumed with trying to, I forgot my main mission is to preach the gospel in Middlesbrough. Yeah. My mind was constantly consumed with arguing, fighting against equality, uh, the, the, the injustice and the lack of equality within the church. And uh, I, I almost got him, my motivation was almost a class war rather than yeah. uh, uh, preaching the gospel. Yeah, man, and it's exhausting, yeah. right? It, it's a full day's work to go back and forth with people who are intent on misunderstanding what you say. Yeah. And what I found is like, man, I would spend so much time trying to go back and forth in hopes that, right, not uh, not that I'm just trying to win an argument, but yeah. in hopes that I could win an ally because I wanted us to have a diverse group of people that went back to the problem to show a solution. And then I found, man, I'm spending more time working for a potential prop partner to come alongside me when my context is drowning in actual problems. And so I said, man, I don't want to spend my time here unsuccessfully trying to convince folks of what goes on there, because all the time that I spend here trying to convince them, the problems here get worse and worse. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be here and get to work with the people that God already has us here with. And hopefully our model will provide some sort of vindication for us. So say, say all you want to that we don't preach the, the gospel, but if we do this work and God starts to bless and people get saved and their economic future changes that will allow them to be able to work and provide for the needs of those that are in the poor, then your arguments about how we've lost the gospel are moot points. So you you can stay and fight about that, but I'm just going to keep my back turned. You're talking to somebody else. I'm going to be here and work, and we're going to see God change um, change the souls and change the situations of people. And we're going to work for both. And at the end of the day, it's this, right? Um, in the same way that we work for evangelism and we hope that God would change the souls of the community that we live in, we know as we go into the work, God may, like, people may not have their souls changed, right? God may not save. Uh, but just because we know that it's a possibility that souls may not save, uh, be saved, we don't stop the work, right? We don't go into the work because we think there's a guarantee that souls will be saved. We go into the work because we know that God can and he's going to do so in his own time. In the same way, I'm going to go in and hope that the situation of those folks will change in the same way Paul in Philippians says, yo, it's my eager expectation and hope that I'll get out of this jail. Paul hopes that he gets out, but he knows, yo, it's not a guarantee that that I'm going to get out, right? So the same Paul who believes in the sovereignty of God is going to appeal to Caesar at the end of Acts because he wants to, to be freed from jail. And the, the key is, yeah, saying, all right, we're going to work for these things. 
but I'm not going to hold God hostage to an outcome that he didn't promise. So I'm going to work and I'm going to trust God and whatever outcomes that we get, those are the outcomes that God wants, but I'm not just not going to address the economic maladies that plague the context that we're in. Yeah, and I think that was my biggest distraction was I was looking nationally and All right. at a strategic level, mm. looking at seminaries mm. need to change, right. nominations and organizations right. need to change. I just felt like yeah. I was banging my head against a brick wall yeah. and, and making enemies rather than, than allies. Yeah. And then when I changed tact, I, did, I wish I'd have seen your tweet <laughs> four years ago. But when I just thought, let's just concentrate on the mission. Uh, my wife wrote, wrote a chapter uh, for, for, for a, a book that uh, 20 Schemes produced yeah. on women's ministry. And she actually just, in part of the chapter, was basically saying that nobody else is coming. We're just going to have to get on with it. <laughs> and, and when we just got on with it, that is when other people started seeing what you said there, the gospel at work, lives being changed. They right. saw that how God was at, at work in our community through what we were doing. And that's when we started getting friends. And I yeah. thought, wow, that is like, if only I'd have done that four years ago, <laughs> I'd have saved myself a lot of stress and I'd mm. probably have had more friends than I've got. <laughs> but it is, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Let's just see what the Lord is doing in our community. Let, let's focus on those who understand because I think some people, no matter how uh, you try and put it, how friendly, people just don't understand. A friend of mine last week was sharing, he keeps being accused of being mean on yeah. his analysis of the UK church. And he said, well, how am I being mean? All I'm saying is, uh, have you given us money? Have you sent us people? Are you yeah. praying for us? And when you answer no, I say, well, you're not helping then. Right. <laughs> so we either say nothing yeah. or we tell the truth. And yeah. if people are offended at the truth, we, we, we might as well say nothing and just get on with the work and uh, and do it. Yeah. I, I'm glad to see that the tide in the UK is changing. I yeah. think more people are, are doing the work, uh, yeah. more people are coming alongside us. What's it like in the States regarding... Uh, race and ethnicity is there a, a change in tide or is it as hard as ever how how is that going so yes both um yeah. it seems like there's a change in tide somewhat right that um i think the rooms where people are mourning the racial injustice the rooms are becoming more and more diverse right so <clears throat> So, I mean, that much is true, mm -hmm. but it is as hard as it's ever been um, in that it's like, <clears throat> all right. So at first it was, man, I wish that y'all would listen to us. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, all right. It seems like they don't hear us because they think it's just an us thing, right? And then the rooms start to grow more diverse and you have more and more white and black folks saying the same thing. And now it's, uh, you're like, all right, the tide's starting to change. I think the majority of people are gonna listen. And what you find is an accusation that we're all being swept away by the political and sociological forces of our day. And so it kind of feels like 
in Isaiah or Ezekiel when, when God's like, yo, I'm going to send you back to them. And as you continue to preach the truth, I just want you to be prepared for the fact that they're going to double down. And that's what it feels like here. So, yeah. It's funny because obviously the UK church see the, the States as our big brother and uh, whatever's happening stateside, we tend to jump on the bandwagon. And yeah. And I think within the evangelical church in, in the UK, especially over the last year with George Floyd and, and, and the things that have been happening, there was a panic amongst the leadership, which is predominantly middle-class wealthy. It's not predominantly, it is white, middle-class academic who have a heart. I think they're stuck in the middle. Like they don't want to upset the, the white working class and they don't want to upset uh, the, the ethnic minorities. That, 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 but because there's no diversity within the leadership, they, they don't really know what to do. And I, I started hearing a lot of uh, things from white uh, middle-class men telling me about my, my white privilege. And I had to explain to them and say, look, there the, the is, the is a white privilege in the UK, but it's not how you see it. So that white privilege initially used to make me feel angry. You think, I'm not privileged, I'm oppressed, I'm poor. Yeah. And, and then I said, uh, I disagreed with it. I thought it was was a fallacy. But mm. then I was speaking to my friend, Ben. Again, he'd been, to, this was a, a remark. I don't know, do you have political correctness in the States? Yeah. Where you have white people telling black people that they can't say things because it's racist. Right. So my friend had asked for a black bag. And then uh, this prison officer, when we were doing some prison ministry, said, oh, you can't say that, it's racist. You've got to say refuse bag. And he was like, I'll use black whenever I want to use black. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I was saying to him, why? Why is the world gone mad? It's stupid. How can anyone be offended by just saying the word black? Yeah. And he sat me down and he said, for you, you're not. And, and the word black doesn't offend me. It's the yeah. fear of what's going to be said after black. Because when you say black, I didn't hear bored afterwards. Mm. or black bag I was waiting for an expletive insult mm. yeah. and so being years of racism when uh, I ever heard black it was always preceding a vile insult and that was the first time I understood that yeah. white privilege that I have so although we were both equally poor yeah there was that excess uh, oppression that he, he there was something else that he had that I would never ever experience because of yeah. The color of my skin yeah. and I think that there's a clumsiness in the UK of trying to explain right what is white privilege yeah. and, and the, uh, the the actual needs and uh, the pain that many black people and other ethnicities have suffered because of racism because I think it's generally white people that were trying to explain it whereas right. if we had probably more Black Christians sharing yeah. what issues are, I think yeah. we'd probably see more problems solved. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think the clumsiness is, you know, all across the the place. Mm. You know, and largely largely in relation to what it is that you brought up, that a lot of times um there are major conversations that take place in terms of you know, diagnosing problems or 
prescribing solutions. And it's not saying that um, you have to be a certain skin color to diagnose a problem or provide a solution. But it is saying that, you know, that there's wisdom in many counselors, right? And many is not just an, an amount, but it's a type. There's wisdom in many types, right? Like wisdom in a diverse group of folks. And I think sometimes people tend to assume that just because they have a lot of people in the room that what they're going to get at the end of that collaboration is something beneficial and they don't take into account. But if everybody in the room sees the world in the same way, then you don't get the benefit of the feedback of a bunch of folks. And again, it's not saying if you're white, you can't talk about race, right? That's not what we're trying to say. But what we are saying is, is if you want to have a nuanced and substantial conversation about things that are complex, it's helpful to have a diverse group of people in the room that speak into it all. And I, I, I do agree that we would um, trip over our feet less if we had a bunch of people being able to look out for potholes on the road. Yeah. And again, for me, even even now, I feel awkward where a couple of years ago, I never had an issue discussing race. Right. But I think the more my eyes have been opened, the more fearful I am. And, right. I, and I've only met you once before, but I got a good feel for who you were and we discussed <laughs> race last time we met. So I'm less awkward with you. Right. <laughs> I'm still yeah, kind yeah. of like saying the wrong thing. But I think we have to be honest and say, look, I love you. This isn't that I see myself any better than you. It's I, yeah. I, I want to show I love you, but I, there's a difference. There's yeah. a difference between us. And I think that's been the biggest problem for me when churches from a more affluent area, their leaders say, look, we're on an equal footing. I'm like, but we're not. Right. We're equal in the eyes of the Lord. We're equal right. as men, but our right. experiences and what we're going through are very, very different. And we've right. got to acknowledge that, don't we, that our experiences are quite different. Our pain, our fears, our uh, the, the the lenses that we look at the world are, are very different. And the more we can be honest and open about that, I think that's when we can challenge some of these problems that we have in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've been helped a bit by, uh, I've just read, well, I haven't, I've started getting my free audible books <laughs> yeah. from Amazon. and if i like the audio book that's for free i'll then buy the hard copy but esau mccauley uh is is uh, reading wild black that's been probably one of the biggest eye openers for me and helping me see past uh, my biases and see that yeah. I'm, I'm looking i used to like to think because i, I grew up listening to hip-hop and watching boys in the hood <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> that, that that I knew what was going on in the world, and yeah. and, and my favourite preachers are all African American, so I thought I'm I'm pretty woke. Right. <laughs> I don't need any help. Yeah. <laughs> but that book was a massive eye opener for me, showing me oh, that yeah. you know what I do have a lot of biases and look at the world completely different. And yeah. yeah. Have you have you read his book yet? Have you oh, I have. Yeah. yeah. Thought it was a fantastic book, and and I I think it's that. Yeah. It's it's to your point. Um, 
you know, I think those resources are helpful uh, to the humble, right? And it's not saying that you have to agree with it all, but it is just saying humility comes into things and says, hey, um, I can learn something from anybody, right? It's a hubris and a pride that comes in and that would say, I don't have anything to learn from them because I already know what they're going to say before you even read what they say. And so that's why, yeah, I thought that his book was great. His posture, his demeanor, his tone, and the things that he brings up is really just, hey, let's have a conversation and let's talk. And I love him because he's brilliant, but accessible. And he really just wants to yeah, help. So I love his book. I don't understand how people, well, I can understand how somebody would disagree based on their viewpoint, but I don't understand how anybody could villainize or demonize the guy. Uh, his posture and tone are just unimpeachable, right? They're just... And I was, I was explaining it to, to my co-pastor and I said, this guy could say something I disagree with, but his tone makes it all <laughs> right, possible to right, disagree right. with. Yeah. <laughs> he's, so, he's so winsome. He's, he, 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 yeah, he's just, he's humble in, in sharing right. it. And he's sharing stuff with humility as well, which I don't think, especially when he was talking about as he was like pulled over in the service station and things like that and that, and 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 the, the 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 police's response to the black community, he doesn't do that with anger. Yeah. And if it ever was, it would be a righteous anger. Whereas I'd be fuming. I'd, I'd be really militant about it. So yeah, again, I think that argument, the way he argues, he argues really well. But yeah. but, but for me, I, I think I'm gonna have to start opening up my uh, library to be a bit more diverse as well. I think. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Awesome. Oh, I'm aware that I've had your time for an hour and I know you're very busy. I could chat to you for for, for days. It's all good. (laughs) Let's do it again soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Jono. It's been absolutely amazing. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the In Context podcast.